So we've made it to Job 38, reading the first 38 verses of that chapter. So Job 38, 1 through 38. God's holy and inspired word, though the flower fades and the grass withers, the word of the Lord endures forever. Give your reading or your attention to the reading of it, Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors, when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far you shall come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt, to bring rain on the land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? For, for, for whose womb, from whose womb did the ice come forth, and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazaroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a, that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightning that they may go? 
and say to you, here we are, who has put wisdom in the inner inward parts or given understanding to the mind, who can number the clouds by wisdom, or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together. That's for the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. So supposedly, we are in the season of surprises. We will keep it a secret where we are going shopping. The wrapping paper will conceal our gifts, and the stockings on the fireplace will hang empty until until the night before. Yes, the delight of surprise seems to be in the air. Though in actuality, we aren't actually very good at surprises, for we make lists of what people can get us. We will slap paper on a present that's easy to determine what it is. And most boring of all, our imaginations dream up of the bland idea of a gift card. Here's money to a store you enjoy. Sure, it's easy and practical, but it is kind of to give up on the higher art of a good surprise. For a good surprise is risky. It requires the effort of creativity and the foresight of planning. It might flop, but when done well, few things are more enjoyable and wonderful than a stellar surprise. Well, our attraction to surprises comes from our creator, who has a holy knack for great surprises. Thus, as the Lord now enters our story, after what has seemed to be an endless chatter of men, he steps forward with the shock and amazement of a perfect surprise. So, finally, the moment that we have been waiting for has arrived. The Lord finally takes the microphone and speaks. And yet, where we as readers have known that this moment has been coming... It's not the same for the characters of our story. Indeed, from where the characters stand, the Lord's showing up is a mix of relief and terror, of shock and expected. For Job, this meeting has been his passion and insistent. He's been asking and demanding for a face-to-face with the Lord for ages now. And yet, even though Job wanted this badly, he despaired of it ever happening. For Job has said, God will not answer one in a thousand. As a man, the Lord would not meet with him. Job also whined that if God did meet with him, he would just crush him and overwhelm him. Thus, Job did pound on the door of heaven for a court case with God, but his stubbornness was soured with hopelessness. And then there are the friends Eliphaz laughed at Job, saying, No one will answer you, Job, not even an angel. Zophar labeled Job's request as a pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking. And Elihu condemned Job for asking for a trial with God. In fact, he explicitly stated that God does not respond to vain and empty cries, which was Job's. In fact, Elihu postured himself as God's stand-in because he knew that the Lord wouldn't address Job. No need for God to say anything, for Elihu is speaking for God, or so he thought. Thus, in one way or another, each of the men would have been happy for, for God to speak, but none of them figured that it would actually happen. 
And this odd tension stands out especially for Elihu as he described the greatness of God coming in the storm, and yet he was dogmatic that God would never come. And yet, what they did not expect happens. The Lord comes in the tempest. Out of a fierce whirlwind, Yahweh opens his mouth. He appears in the very storm that Elihu so eloquently painted. And for the Lord to show up in dark clouds and high winds is terrifying. Was Job right? Is God here to crush him? Our blood pressure rises. And yet the text reads with the divine name, Yahweh. This is the covenantal name of the Lord who redeems his people. And this is basically the first time that Yahweh has been used since chapter 2. The personal name of Yahweh could forecast good things, even as the tempest of his glory makes us shiver. Next, the Lord speaks directly to Job. He addresses not the three amigos. He pays no attention to Elihu, but the Lord takes up his oration with Job alone. Now, this could be good or bad, but at least it signifies a significance of to, uh, to Job. What the four friends say, this was ignorable. But Job's arguments were weighty enough to warrant a response. This tips the odds in favor of Job over against the other four. But now Yahweh, but now the words of Yahweh ring forth. Who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, Job. Now, on first impression, this icebreaker feels violent and harsh. To dress for action like a man is to gird up one's loins. It is to strap on your armor for battle. Or more particularly, to the image is that of sumo wrestling. Job needs to put on his mawashi like a big boy and enter the ring with Yahweh. Talk about horrifying. The Lord is going to solve his case with Job by a trial by ordeal of wrestling and sumo wrestling at that. Surely Job is going to be pulverized into the dust. And yet, this is not a wrestling competition, but it's one of wits. The Lord says, I will question you. You speak without knowledge, so tell me what you know. This is a contest of knowledge, a tournament of wisdom. The scene is moved from the wrestling ring to the comfort of the chairs of a debate. Indeed, even though the general setting here is one of trial, Job has been asking for a court case, nevertheless, the Lord leaves aside any explicit legal terminology or forensic protocol. Instead, the decor resembles more of the educative. This trial is unfolding not in a courthouse, but the classroom. And as we shall see, the Lord does not file charges against Job for sin. He does not read off a list of Job's felonies. There is no evidence of guilt submitted. Instead, the Lord merely gives Job a final exam. He will test his knowledge. And the topic of the test is the darkening of the Lord's counsel. Now, counsel here refers to the Lord's plan and design. It is the sovereign purpose 
by which God created and controls the universe, Yahweh's governing and wise order. Now, this has been at the center of the debate. How does God rule the world? By retribution or some other principle? What is the Lord doing in making Job suffer so? Moreover, to darken here means to obscure, to confuse and muddle. Thus, Job is obscuring God's orderly design with unlearned words. His ignorance is casting what is tidy as messy. He's coloring the logical as chaotic. Hence, Job po- or Yahweh pokes Job, you think my well-ordered design is in disarray? Well, then you tell me how you would do it better. I will question you, you answer me. Thus, the Lord unleashes a plethora of questions at Job, which itself is very telling. For Job has been spewing questions at the Lord. Why am I suffering, Lord? Why won't you hear me? Why, God, why? And now the Lord responds to Job's questions with questions of his own. And these questions of God accomplish much. One, they humble by exposing how little Job and us know and can do. Two, these questions, in one sense, express a modesty in the Lord. Note that Yahweh here does not make bold statements of his creative power. Rather, he inquires of who made this and who did that. Now, clearly, these are the Lord's deeds, But to put it in question form invites praise instead of imposing power. And thus, finally, these questions create a tone of wonder and amazement. As the Lord is talking about his creative works, it's as if he's astonished by his own creation. Job is lamenting that this is a strange world. And God's questions sing out how the world is much stranger than Job perceives. But with the scene set, let's get into it. Okay, Job says, the Lord, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who measured out the earth? Who sunk its pillars and set the world's cornerstone? Thus the Lord sets forth, a front and center, his ancient craftsmanship when he measured, cut, and masoned together this majestic universe. Though if you think about it, these questions are not hard to answer. These are not deep deep unknowables that makes Job go, I don't know. Rather, this is established truth within Job's understanding. Now, there may be a loftiness here that he cannot fully grasp, but it's obvious that Yahweh alone set the pillars of the earth, and Job was nowhere around in the primordial path. Thus, their intended result is stated in verse 7. When the, when the stars sang and the sons of God rejoiced happily, so grand was the fashioning of the world, the angels leapt forth in joyful music and dance. Job has complained about the evil of the world, and Yahweh reminds him, but don't you remember how the angels rejoice? If the stars make melody, 
How much weight do your complaints have? Thus, in this classroom of the Lord educating Job, he takes him out on a field trip, out into the wide and wonderful world of God's making. The Lord employs natural theology to instruct Job and us about his amazing design and governance. Thus, next, Yahweh brings up the sea. Now, in common understanding, the ocean, or the sea, was the embodiment of chaos and destruction. It was wild and untamable, ever ready to threaten and swallow up the land of the living. But this is not how God portrays it. He says, who locked the sea behind doors and then delivered it from the mother's womb? Who closed the sea in clouds and swaddled it in dark gloom? I put limits on the sea. I said, here you shall come, but no further. The mighty waters of the ocean are pictured here as a little infant. The Lord was the midwife to deliver it, and then he swaddled it in warm blankets of cloud and gloom. And then, like a rowdy toddler, he penned it up in a solid crib that it could not escape. What seems like a fierce foe to us is God's little child that he cares for and makes obedient. Yahweh is not capricious or fickle here, but he attends to and keeps an eye on his lovely creations. And again, Job knows this, but he needs to be reminded of it. Next, the Lord brings up the dawn and questions, and he questions, and the questions focus more on Job's ability rather than just his knowledge. Note he says, can you command the morning to dawn? Can you cause the sun to rise? Well, of course not. Job knows this. God does, uh, does this, not humans. And yet look at the effect of the sunrise. It says the morning light shakes out the wicked. It makes them stand out like an outer garment, and it breaks the rebellious arm. Now this assumes the truth about how wicked men Love the night. They live and thrive in the darkness. In fact, Job himself stated this in chapter 24 when he said, How the wicked love the darkness. Thus, what does the light of day do to the wicked? Well, it exposes them. It shines a light on their evil of the night and brings punishment. This is a reality of common and restraining grace. By the morning dawn, the evil of the night can be brought to justice. Now, sure, there's exceptions to this, but it is still a general rule and a wonderful one, as it's not us humans who command the morning, but God alone. Therefore, God's design is moral. It's decent. He permits the wicked their night escapades, but by the sunrise, they're tossed in jail. And from here, the Lord progresses downward towards the bowels of the netherworld. Hey, Job, have you traveled to the springs of the sea? Have you toured the basement of the deep? Do you know where the gates of death are? Have you located that dock where you pay the boatmen passage to the realm of death shade? And again, the answer to these questions is easy. This is not difficult for Job. 
Of course he knows not where to find the doors of Sheol. He has no ability to plunge the dungeons of the deep. But the effect of this is once again to salute the Lord. Contra common ideas, Sheol was not some realm of some deity of the dead who rivals the God of heaven. No, instead, the netherworld is merely God's holding tank. It was created as his prison for the departed. Moreover, even though all the living will enter Sheol, no living can locate it on a map. What a stupendous riddle. Where is the place that everyone goes but no one can find? Sheol. This is the marvelous plan of our Lord. Next, the Lord asked about light and darkness. Do you know the address of light's home? Where is the abode of darkness? Can you trace the paths of light and dark? Can you order them to return home? Now, there seems to be allusion to Genesis 1 here, the light and dark of day 1. Thus, he asked Job, is he old enough to remember dark and light? Was he born on day 1 to know about and then control light and dark? Now, again, the answers here are simple, but they impress how on us how young and limited we are. If a woman lived to be a thousand years old, she would be but a newborn compared to the primeval ancientness of light and dark. Moreover, to make darkness jump at one's beck and call, this is so far out of our orbit of ability. But such glories are easy peasy for the Lord. And then the Lord moves on from here to the forces of the weather. Yahweh probes Job about the storehouses of snow and hail, the manners of lightning and the east wind. He inquires about the parents of rain and dew, of ice and frost, and the grand ice shelves of the Arctic. And the stress is not so much on mysteries unknown by Job. He knows, at least in part, all this stuff about the weather and climate. Instead, this more celebrates the sweet control of the Lord over a world that is way bigger than us humans. As humans, we have the tendency to think that the world revolves around us. Job has definitely been me-focused in all his lamenting. Yet Yahweh's governance deals with so much more than humans. People may store up gold and silver, but the Lord fills his treasuries with snow and hail, and he keeps them for his purposes, for the day of battle and war, for the season of distress. Moreover, hail during battle, this may increase woe, but it could also diminish it. If it snows, the generals may stop fighting to save lives. Additionally, the Lord steers the wind and lightning to drop rain in no man's land. He waters the wasteland where no human dwells, and he'll still make it flush with green grass. If this world was all about us, what would be the point of rain in the desert? But Yahweh cares and blesses land and sea irrespective of us. Besides, this turning the desert into a field makes the uninhabitable habitable 
Rain in the, we- in the wasteland expands where we can live and flourish on God's green earth. The kind and generous rule of the Lord stands tall and bright here. And from here, the Lord picks up a telescope to peer in the night sky. Hey, Job, can you bind Pleiades or Orion? Can you lead out the constellations in their season or guide the bear with its cubs? The ability of Job is fronted again here more than his knowledge. For surely Job knows about constellations and their cycles of when they appear. In fact, Job praised God for these same stars back in chapter 9. Rather, the timing of the constellations make us see how tiny and young we are. These stars are millions of light years away. They're hundreds of times bigger than the earth. And yet God is bigger and older still. The stars that dwarf us are the Lord's Legos that he plays with. The constellations humble us, but they also fill us with adoration for the Lord. And finally, in the first part of the Lord's first speech here, he brings up the thunderstorm, verses 34 to 38. Do you know the customs of heaven? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and make thunder obey you? Is lightning your yes man? Are you wise enough to number the clouds? Can you tilt the water bottles of heaven so that dust runs like water and clods clump like clay mud? The comparison of what God does and what humans cannot do is ridiculous. To think that humans can control the climate is silly. To posit that we can change the environment of the world is like a toddler claiming he can fly. God pats us on the head. How cute. Silly humans. Climate control is for the Lord. And here in verse 38, the Lord concludes this section on creation and its marvelous features. And then he begins another section on animals that we'll look at next. But up to this point, what have we seen? Well, the first noticeable thing here is what is missing. To show up in a tempest for a trial where Job needs to gird his loins up makes us expect judicial harshness. Job is about to get spanked for his crimes, but none of this came to be. The Lord filed no felonies against Job. He he mentions no explicit violations of the law. Instead, Yahweh questions Job as a teacher. He gave him a lovely field trip out in nature. To our great surprise, the Lord's tone here is gentler and more merciful. He didn't crush Job as Job guessed. He didn't condemn Job as the friends predicted. Now, this definitely favors Job's innocence over against the friends' charges of guilt. Secondly, though, the Lord stated no answers here, but he asked only questions. In the long debate, question after question was put to the Lord. Why is Job suffering? Will you, God, please show Job his sin? The friends asked God, 
or asked that God would vindicate their retribution principle. Job, he pled for proof of his uprightness. He was doubtful of the Lord's topsy-turvy governance of the world. And yet the Lord does appear and he answers all these questions with more questions. By this he shows his prerogative as the Lord. For servants can ask, but they cannot boss around. God retains the sovereignty to control the terms of communication. Third, the Lord's series of questions are practically hymnic here. They evoke adoration, wonder, and awe. They're filled with delight and joy at the beauty of God's artful creation and providence. It's kind of like when you do a fine job at making something and you stand back with satisfaction and you say, yeah, I did that. Well, so also the Lord is captivated by the artistry of the world and the majesty of his governing care. These questions of, of adoration invite us to join the angels in singing. Additionally, the wonder of God's work increases the mystery, the mysteries of his design. The friends insisted that God's design was simple. It just followed retribution. Job countered that God's plan was more bizarre and puzzling. And now Yahweh says to Job, you have no idea how mystifying my design is. Job appealed to God's paradox, and God writes more paradoxes on the board. The Lord's metaphors here are gorgeous riddles. He swaddles the sea in cloud. He lays the earth's cornerstone over the void. He speaks of rain as having a daddy. Yahweh keeps snow in a vault as if it was crown jewels. And he sends all people to a place that no one can find. He transforms the wasteland into a paradise, but no one, no human is there to enjoy it. Job was the doubter, kicking against the goads of God's riddles, and Yahweh appears with more riddles. For the riddles of God are way more satisfying than those of man. Job was sure that the world's, the Lord's world was stranger than the friends made it out to be. And Yahweh adds, oh, it's way more stranger than you think, Job. Yet, in all this bewildering riddles of God, there is divine care, there's goodness, there's order, and most of all, there is beauty. Yahweh's a daddy rocking the infant sea. He brings life to what is dead. He restrains wickedness with the light that's new every morning. He saves the snow and the hail for days of distress and war. And in this, we unwrap the best surprise of God. Yahweh surprises us here in many ways. He shows up, which none of the five guys expected. He speaks to Job that the friends swore would not happen. The Lord surprises us with his majestic artwork of his world and his providential care. 
And yet in all this transcendent power of God, amid all this omniscient wisdom of the Almighty, the sweetest astonishment here is grace. Yes, from the gentle form of the questions to the lovely care for the desert, the Lord exhibits grace. Now most of this here is common grace, the common grace of rain, restraint of wickedness, and managing the seasons of the stars. But God's grace towards Job is special. Even though Job is morally upright, his banging on the door of heaven is proud, and God could easily deal with him harshly. Instead, though, the Lord comes not to condemn Job with cruel justice, but he comes to be reconciled, to humble Job, and to bring Job back to God's warmth. And this surprise of grace towards Job which is who was better than we are, heralds for us the best surprise of Yahweh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the aspects of God's rule praised here is that the Lord has way more on his plate than just us. He shows concern and nourishment for the whole of his massive universe. He made the stars to shine like gems long before humans ever showed up. He feeds the desert desert cactus that no person will ever see. In the ancient and glorious universe, we are puny things. And yet in his grace, God reveals his name as Yahweh, our covenant Lord and Redeemer. And in the fullness of time, the the Father sent forth his Son, Jesus, to die for us and rise for our justification to save us all of grace. Yes, the gospel is the most wonderful surprise of our Lord's grace. The cross of Christ is the most satisfying and comforting riddle of the Lord. How could the holy God die for us? Who knows? But he did. Therefore, may all these questions of God make you love and wonder at your Lord, your Creator, and your Savior. May his mysterious ways humble us in faith to trust God more than anything else. And may the gentleness of Yahweh from the whirlwind make us delight in the grace of Christ and his mercy that is new every morning. So that we can join the angels to sing his praise now and forever. Amen. Let's pray.